right. Y'all can have a seat. All right, let's get to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 today. We are in a study of the book of Isaiah, and as I have said, the past few weeks we've been bouncing around from different chapters, kind of going through the Christmas messages. And, and uh, today, with it being New Year's Eve, chapter 6, I just felt like was an appropriate chapter. Not the entire chapter, but just the first seven verses we're going to look at. But I just felt like chapter 6 is a great place to go to when we're getting ready to turn a new year. Because let me ask you a question. How many of you can tell me uh, what lies in store for you in 2024? No idea? Not a clue? Obviously not. None of us know, all right? None of us know what is going to take place starting tomorrow. None of us know what, what, what lies ahead of us in 2024, all right? No one, none of us know what changes are going to come in 2024. Well, that's what's happening here in chapter 6. Isaiah is experiencing a major change. A, a chapter is being, is being is starting. A page is being turned. And um, Isaiah has got to see something differently. That's what I want us to look at today. I want us to, to realize that since we don't know what is to take place in 2024, since we don't know what changes may happen in 2024, we need to see differently. And the title of my message is simple, Seeing in the New Year. And so the thing that I want us to look at is what do we need to see? What do we need to keep seeing? Well, that's what we're going to see from Isaiah chapter 4 or chapter 6. Four things that Isaiah saw, and I believe we need to see the same things. And so if you have an outline, I would encourage you to take some notes, open your Bibles, follow along. Let's look at four things that we need to keep seeing in the new year. Here's the first thing. Keep seeing the majesticness of the Lord. Now, for those of you who are very... Um, grammar-minded, you're right off the bat going, majesticness, Jim? Dude, that's not a word. I know it's not. Um, but my Google, my Google Docs did not underline it, so it's a word to me then. Um, I had to go with majesticness because where I'm going with this point, it didn't fall in line with my other three points because my other three points have the... What, what is the... I try to think, what is the last... like a. See, the English stuff. I need an English major here. The last part of the word is ness, N-E-S, N-E-S, N-E-S-S. My last three points have those. I needed it in my first point, okay? I came up with majesticness, and I'll tell you why here in a moment. So here's what we see. We got to keep seeing the majesticness of the Lord, and here's what Isaiah sees. So there in chapter 6, starting in verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, we got to start with where he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, all right? Now, for you and I, you probably don't even have a clue who King Uzziah is, and so that's probably a good place to start. Let's get an idea of why he needed to see the Lord when King Uzziah died. 
Now, if you want to know who King Uzziah was, you can go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 26, and that paints the bigger picture of who this king was. King Uzziah was the king of Judah at this time. Now, remember, I've, I, I taught this over the past couple of weeks, that Israel was divided into two nations at this time. You had the northern kingdom, which was still called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And they both were ruled by two different kings. Judah, at this time, the southern portion of Israel, was ruled by King Uzziah. And Uzziah became king at the age of 16. Now, most parents freak out when your kids get driver's license. This dude becomes king of Judah at the age of 16. And he ruled as king for 52 years. That's a long time. I mean... We have no idea what that means, okay? We have a president for eight years. I mean, who was the longest-running president in our country? Do you know? Do you know? FDR. FDR. Very good. How long? How many years? Four terms? Actually, three terms, 12 years. Okay, 12 years. So that was like 12 years changed the Constitution on that, all right? That's why we have only eight-term presidents. But we always, I mean... 52 years, this guy reigned and ruled as king. And the thing about King Uzziah was, is that 2 Chronicles tells us that he, was a, he, he, he did what was right in the, in the Lord's eyes. He was a godly king. And he, it even says that he set his eyes to seek the Lord. That's a good thing. Boy, don't we wish we had a president that would do that? He would just get up and go, hey, we're seeking the Lord on everything. But that's where Uzziah was. And it tells us in 2 Chronicles that um, as long as he sought the Lord, the Lord blessed him. And that Judah, under the leadership and the kingship of, of Uzziah, Judah prospered abundantly. And they were very strong militarily. So kind of think about that for a moment. For 52 years, this nation prospered. And any time an army tried to oppose them and come against them, they were defeated. Now he has died. Think about what the nation's thinking. What is Isaiah thinking? Because Isaiah has been the prophet under this guy. And, and for the most part, Isaiah's job was fairly simple. He's got it going on. I don't have to tell him anything. He's seeking the Lord. He's doing good. I sat and wondered, did they start to think, what's going to happen? Where are we going to go? What, what changes are going to come? Because after he dies, his son, Jotham, becomes king. He's a newbie. How's he going to rule? What's he going to be like? Can you see the... The questions is kind of stirring in people's minds, maybe even the, the, the mind of Isaiah. So I believe the Lord had to give Isaiah a vision, had to get us seeing differently. Because notice he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, it, I, I don't think he like, like, like physically, but he had a vision, like Heaven opened up, and he saw the Lord. Now, in the book of John, chapter 12, verse 41, it actually says that he saw Christ. 
He saw Jesus at this point. All right. But look at how he saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What is he seeing Jesus as right now? King. All right. I mean, he's on a throne. It's high and lifted up, and he's got a robe on, and that robe, that train of that robe is filling the temple. He is seeing the king of kings. He's seeing, my word, the majesticness. He's seeing the majesty of Christ, and he's seeing who Jesus is. He's seeing him as king. And I, I, I thought about this, and, and it's like, it's almost as if God had to give Isaiah this vision. Because for 52 years, his eyes has been on one king, Uzziah. And now Uzziah's died. And I'm wondering if, if, if the Lord had to show Isaiah something and go, Isaiah, Uzziah was a great king, but he was a man. And Isaiah, right now you are seeing not just a king, but the king. And not just any the king, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's almost like God had to give Isaiah a vision. And, and God saying to Isaiah, I am the king. And as king, okay, now I, 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 test, I put Paula through this test and she passed. Like I've said a couple times before, when you get to the lowest common denominator of a king, what is it about a king that stands out? How does he rule? Huh? No, not his word. He rules in a certain way. Justice, but even more. Who makes all the decisions? The king. So he is... Sovereign, okay? A king, not like today, King Charles is not sovereign. But in his time, Isaiah's time, a king was sovereign. And he ruled sovereignly. You see, I, will, I wanted to use the word sovereignly here, but it didn't fit with my other three nesses. So that's where I became majesticness. You see where I was going with that? The king... A king rules sovereignly, meaning I'm in charge, I'm in control, I get things done. Jesus is like saying to Isaiah, I am the sovereign Lord. I am the sovereign king. I'm in control of this, Isaiah. What? You don't have to freak out about anything. I know what's going on. In fact, you notice it says, I saw, the, I saw the Lord sitting. It's almost like it's almost like he's saying, oh, I am so sovereign. I rule not just nations. I rule the universe. And guess how I do it? Sitting down. He's not even walking. He's not pacing back and forth. Boy, I really hope this universe stays together. No, he is sitting down ruling. And that's what Isaiah had to see. He had to see the king. 
and not just any king, but the king of kings. He has to see the sovereign rule and reign of Jesus Christ. He has to know that this great earthly king just died, but it's not falling apart. Things are changing. The page is flipped and a new chapter is being written, but the king of kings has it in control. He is sovereign. And Isaiah gets to see this. Now, you and I are probably not seeing, oh, a heaven open up. Would I be correct in assuming that? Like I've said, most of us probably are not hearing the very verbal voice of God. All right? You're probably not hearing, thus says the Lord. You're probably not having, like in the Old Testament, a visitation of Christ manifest in your presence. It's probably not happening. And more than likely, we are not having a literal opening up of the heavens like Isaiah or Ezekiel or like Paul when he says, I went to the third heaven. Or like John in the book of Revelation. We're probably not having those things. So the question's got to be asked. How do you and I then see the Lord? We see the Lord through the lens of what? His word, but something else has to go before the word. Michael? Faith. Man, he is on it. We see the Lord through the eyes of faith, through the lens of the word. Because here's why. If you don't have faith, the word doesn't matter, right? You got to have faith in the word. And when you have faith in the word, you see, and faith has to be, it, it, has, to, it has to be out there. Because doesn't 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 tell us something? Do you know that verse? Anybody? We walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith. Do you remember when I was preaching through John and, and, and when... Jesus resurrected from the grave and he showed up to the disciples and Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas was like, I won't believe until I see. And then when he finally sees, he says, oh, you're my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, you believe because you see. But blessed are all of those. Do you know how? Can you finish it? Who don't see, but yet believe. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, Peter writes, he says, You have never seen him, but yet you love him. You do not see him now, yet you believe in him. You see, that's faith. Faith says, I see the Lord when I don't see the Lord. And the way you and I see the Lord is through his word. And so by faith, I take the word of God. By faith, I say, first of all, this is the word of God. It's not just a word. It is the word. That's faith. So faith says, I believe this to be the very word of God. And so when I say by faith, I believe this is the very word of God, then when I read chapter 6 of Isaiah, guess what I'm seeing? 
by faith, I'm seeing the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And his train of his robe is filling the temple. I see the Lord as the king. I see the Lord as the king of kings. I believe he is. And if I believe that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, I got to believe in his sovereignty. I got to believe what the word of God says, that he is the sovereign Lord. Do you see how all this weaves together? He's, I'm, I'm not just like making this stuff up. It's, he's the king. And he is the sovereign king. And Isaiah got to see it physically, but you and I have to see it spiritually. And we see it through the eyes of faith and we read the word of God. And so when I read this, I have to believe Jesus is sovereign. The Lord is sovereign. And this is a doctrine that a lot of Christians struggle with. Is the Lord sovereign over everything. In Romans chapter 10, it tells us that we are saved by faith. Okay? It tells us that if we confess with our mouth that God raised Jesus from the dead, we shall be saved. But there's another thing we got to confess that He is Lord. You see, we love Jesus being Savior, but do we love Jesus being Lord? Because lordship means he's in control. A lot of us, you know, Jesus is my co-pilot. Jesus is like, I'm nobody's co-pilot. In fact, get out of the plane. I'm flying this thing. Jesus is Lord means I am in control. For a lot of us, we don't want that. And that's why there is always in some Christians a budding of wills. My will and God's will. And we think we can fight the will of God. And we don't. That's why the Bible tells us that God exalts those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. Humbling myself under the mighty hand of God means I humble myself under his sovereign rule, under his sovereign hand. So whatever he allows, and can you do this in 2024? Whatever comes into my life, you are sovereign. Whatever you allow, Father, for whatever reason, you are Lord. You are sovereign over my life. Can you see the majesticness of who Jesus is in 2024? Can you come to the place through the eyes of faith, through the lens of God's word, to embrace the sovereignty of the Lord? And wherever that takes you this year, because we already already said it, none of us knows what's coming, right? We don't know what changes are coming. But can you believe whatever changes do come, whatever does happen, that the sovereign hand of the Lord is in it? Can you believe that? And can you trust that? Because that is one of the things that we have to see in 2024. We have to see the sovereignty 
and the lordship of the king of kings and see his majesticness. Here's the second thing we got to keep seeing, and it's this. Keep seeing the holiness of the Lord. Keep seeing the holiness of the Lord. Now look at verse 2. It says, Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, that's all it says. The seraphim flew. And I'm not going to begin to sit here and give you some kind of biblical idea of we have no idea what the, they have six wings. All right. We know that in the book of Revelation, we kind of see another creature with six wings, but they had eyes in the back of their head and different faces and all kinds of stuff. All I know is this. This is some kind of angelic being and it flew around God. Are we okay with that? Okay. And it had six wings. Two wings covered their face. Two wings covered their body. And two wings flew. Now again, why? I have no idea. But I can give you an assumption. Can I give you my best assumption? My best guess? Is that these seraphim, the word seraphim actually means burning ones. I believe that they had to cover themselves because they knew who they were in the presence of. They were flying around the throne of Christ. And I believe these seraphim understood who they were in comparison to who he is. And they felt like we can't even look at him. The Bible says that God is a, is a, is a, um, a consuming, I was thinking a combustible fire. I'm like, that's not right. A consuming fire. So I'm sitting there, these guys are called the burning ones. Is the, the consuming fire consuming them? And it's like, they, they're like, I'm going to just, I'm covering myself up. And they flew with two wings. But they were in the very throne room, the very presence of the king of kings. But here's the thing. It is not about who they are. It's about what they were saying is the most important thing. And they were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Saying the word holy, it's not like they're like, Jesus is holy. No, they're like, holy, holy, holy. And, and saying it in a, in a, like a trifecta, and in, in saying it three times, the idea is, is that they are trying to describe the intensity of the holiness. There's no other way to say it except to just keep repeating it. The idea is, is that they are in the strongest way trying to express something. And, and they are intensely trying to express and elevate the degree of the holiness of the Lord. The reality is that they can't do it. They, the only thing they can say is holy, holy, 
holy. And I'm sure they probably would just keep saying it because that is the Lord. The word holy, actually, it, it, it kind of describes the Lord in a way that he is totally and in every way distinct and set apart from everything he rules and everything he creates. Nothing comes close to him. The, the, the idea of holiness means that in Christ, in the Lord, there is absolutely nothing sinful. John says it this way in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. He says, this message that we have heard from him, meaning Christ, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The darkness is sin. He's like, there is no sin at all in God. You and I can't begin to understand that. Because all we see around us, whether it's people, the earth, whatever, it is what? It's sin. It's cursed. That's all we know. These seraphim are trying to say something in a way where Isaiah is like, man, I, I'm trying to get this. It's the same thing that the apostle John wrote in Revelation chapter 4. When he gets to see heaven open up, when he is like taken up to heaven, John is writing and he's like, I saw these creatures and here's what they say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I almost like that because it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the King, Almighty. It's trying to express something in such a way. And Isaiah sees this absolute holiness in the Lord. And when he sees that, he sees the holiness. He sees these angelic beings saying that. He's like, cool. That's awesome. Giddy up there, God. Not even close. Which takes us to our third thing that he sees. Before I give you the point, let me just read the text to set it up. So these angelic beings are just crying out, holy. And I like it. They're saying it to one another. One's like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the other one's, ah, holy, holy. And they just keep going back and forth, back and forth. In verse 4, it says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I just sit and go, could you imagine the awesome wonder that Isaiah is experiencing right now? He's like seeing this stuff. And even when the Lord speaks, it's like everything just shook. But here's the key. When he sees all this, verse 5, he says, And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. Some of you may have a version that says, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. For my eyes. He goes, he's like, here's why I'm saying what I'm saying. Here's why I, I say, woe is me. Here's why I say I am ruined. Here's why I'm saying I've got these unclean lips and I live among people with unclean lips. Here's why. 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's like, I have seen the King. I have seen his awesomeness. I've seen his holiness. I've seen his majesticness. And here's the only thing I can say. I am a sinner. So here's what you and I got to keep seeing in 2024. And it's this. Keep seeing the sinfulness of self. Because when he says that I have unclean lips and I live among a people with unclean lips, the Bible says that the mouth is dirty. Why? Because the heart is dirty. What he is simply saying, he's like, I have unclean, I have unclean lips. I have unclean because I have an unclean heart. He's like, I have sin within me. That is the very first thing he acknowledges when he sees the king. When he sees the majesticness of the Lord, when he sees the holiness of God, the only thing he can do is like, I'm ruined. I'm such a sinner. Now you notice, he says, I have unclean lips and the people I dwell with have unclean lips. How many of you know, it would have been very easy for Isaiah to be like, these people, they are messed up, but not me. He could have been like, I'm a prophet. I am having this vision. If I was a sinner, do you think God would let me see this thing? I don't think so. Now, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. Because when you read about the people in Isaiah's time, under the, king, under the leadership of Uzziah and Jotham, and you'll read in 2 Chronicles that both of those kings followed the Lord. But the people, negative. They're like, oh, you two can follow the Lord, but we're going to follow our own ways. Isaiah didn't point fingers. Where was the finger pointing? To self. He had no other response when he knew and he saw the holiness of God, the only response, the only thing he could say is, I'm taking blame. I acknowledge my own sin. I am a sinner. And compared to that, I am ruined. You see, the problem with us today is unfortunately, when it comes to seeing our sin, we don't want to see our sin. And here's what we do. We justify it. We make excuses for it. Well, this is why I do this. It's not that bad. And if we're really good at it, we'll even use scripture to give reasons why we can sin. Well, you know, Jesus tells us that we're not to judge people. So who are you to tell me that I'm a sinner? Well, you know, Jesus says don't throw the first stone. If you don't have sin in your life, then throw, you know. We, we, we take scripture out of context and we make it say something to support what we want to do. We justify our sin. We make excuses for our sin. Another thing we do is we like to, well, the culture says it's okay. You know, my, 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 the people I work with, man, a good, a good friend I work with, you know, she keeps telling me, man, you need to leave that guy. He just doesn't love you enough. 
you need to get a divorce. And we listen to that, and we're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. We listen to our best friends. We listen to whoever, and we think, yeah, I, I think they're right. So I, I think I'm going to do that. Another thing we do is we compare ourselves to one another. I know I'm not perfect, but holy cow, have you seen Lauren lately? She's really messed up. I'm not that bad. And we think because I'm not as bad as Lauren, then I'm okay. And we compare ourselves. So we, we justify ourselves. We, we excuse ourselves. We, we, we try to listen to the culture. We, we, we compare ourselves. And the problem with all of that is we are using the wrong standard. Imagine for a moment if we all were seniors in high school again. Wouldn't that be awesome? To be 17, 18 again. But imagine, but imagine if we were all seniors in high school. And we're down to, let's say, the last few weeks before graduation. Remember graduation in high school? That was great, man. Everybody's looking forward to graduation. And we all are gathered in one classroom. The principal comes in. And he says, before any of you graduate, you got to take one final test. 100 questions. And there's grammar on there, sentence structures on there, science is on there, math is on there, history is on there, social studies. Everything that you have studied is on this test. And the principal says, and here's the thing, in order for you to go to graduation, to go to the graduation ceremony, you have got to pass the test. You're thinking, a D's not that hard. I can do that all day long. But there's a caveat to the past. He says the past, though, is you have to pass it perfectly. You can't miss one thing on the test. If you one thing is wrong on the test, you fail. And if you fail the test, you cannot go to the graduation. Oh, that'd be easy. Bring it on. Everybody takes their test. They pass it in. The tests are graded. Principal passes them all back. And here's the thing. Nobody got a perfect. Now, the principal says, hey, I got to go and go over your test, talk about them, whatever. I'll be back in a little while. He leaves. So we all sit around and we're comparing our tests to one another. Lauren got a 92. That's an A. Giddy up for an A, man. I would love to have an A. Marlene gets an 85. Not as good as Lauren, but an 85, that's a solid B. That's pretty good. JR, he got a 37 though. <laughs> he didn't study the last four years. And he's like, 37, Ugh, that's, 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 a, that's an F. And Amanda looks at JR and thought, oh, I thought I did bad. I got a 62. Wow, not as bad as a 37. I can be all right with a 62. Mm -hmm. 
But then Jan, she goes, I did better than y'all. I got a 99.9. All I did, and I don't know how I did this, I missed one comma during the during sentence structure part. One comma. Man, I don't know about y'all, but I'll be going to the graduation ceremony. So then the principal shows back up, and he starts from the lowest and goes to the highest. He starts with Jr. Jr. You tried, buddy, but 37, that is not going to cut it. You failed. Amanda, you got a 62. You failed. Marlene, you got an 85. It's pretty good, but you failed. Lauren, you got an A, but you failed. Jan, wow, 99.9%. You did better than everybody in here. But Jan, you failed. Now, Jan all of a sudden goes, whoa, time out there, hoss. What do you mean I failed? I got a 99.9%. I did better than everybody in here. How in the world can you say I failed? Compared to everybody else in this room, I am so much smarter, so much better. I did, I, I missed a comma. The principal looks at Jan and says, I understand what you're saying, Jan. I really do. But here's the problem, Jan. You're using the wrong standard. You're comparing your test score with everybody else in the room instead of the correct standard. And Jan, the correct standard is what I said. As principal, I said, if you miss one thing, you will fail because you have to do it perfectly. Jan, you're using the wrong standard. And because you're not using my standard, you think you passed but you failed. You see, that is what we do with our sin. We compare our sin to one another. Well, I am not that bad. I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. I don't steal things. Oh, sure, I may, I may tell some, you know, really bad jokes. I, I, may, I may, you know, my mouth isn't very clean. And, you know, I mean, yeah, that's, you know, but it's not that bad. And what we do is when we start comparing our sin with one another, when we compare our sin because, well, the culture says it's okay. My friend thinks it's okay. My best, you know, my coworker says it's okay. When we start doing that, guess where we are? Failing. The standard is always God. And it's his word. And God says... Be holy as I am holy. We have to be perfect. And the only way we can be perfect is through Christ. We have to see our sin. We have to, in 2024, have to see God. Through the lens, 
through the eyes of our faith, through the lens of his word, we see the Lord. And when we see the Lord through the word, we see his holiness. And we know that the word of God tells us that Jesus is holy. And he has set a standard for us. And we, through 2024, have got to see the standard that God has set and try our best to walk according to it through the power and the help of the Holy Spirit in us. Are you going to be perfect in 2024? Absolutely not. But the goal that we should strive for in 2024 is even like Paul, I am going to keep aiming for perfection. Man, I, I, I'm going to forget what I've done because I've messed up and I know Jesus has forgiven me. But man, I'm not going to use my freedom in Christ to be an excuse for the flesh. I'm not going to let the grace of God go, well, I'll be forgiven, to be a crutch as to continue to sin. The goal for us as a believer in Jesus Christ is that we are seeing the Lord and seeing self. And we see our sin and we look at it and go, I don't want to be here. And that's hard sometimes because we get comfortable with our sinfulness. We get comfortable with the lifestyle we're in, something we're doing, something, you know, this is, the, I just, I've always talked like this. It's hard to change. I know it is. So when I do mess up, guess what I'm doing? Father, forgive me. I'm keeping short accounts of that sin. And the goal that we need to be pressing for as a church, as an individual, as families, is that we are pressing, keep pressing for holiness. Paul says that he, in, in, in Romans chapter 12 when he says, in view of the mercy of God, in view of what Jesus has done for him, me, I'm going to offer myself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. So that means when, when I do something and I know it's sin, I'm quick to forgive. Father, forgive me. If there is something in my life that I have got to change, then I got to change it. Father, help me to deal with this. Father, help me not to be here. Father, help me not to act like this, to behave like this, to talk like this. To, I don't want to be here. And that means I'm walking differently. Can, See, that's what repentance is about. Real repentance doesn't mean I'm perfect by any means. But real repentance is I see the path I'm on. I see the sin in myself and I, I turn away from it. I, I'm not just going to keep, well, Father, forgive me, but I don't change. We're not perfect. None of us are. But our desire... The heart desire within us for 2024 should be, Father, help me to be holy because you are holy. Help me to see the sin in myself. And Father, help me to confess this stuff, to be real with it, to admit it, to acknowledge it, to be like Isaiah. 
Woe is me. I am ruined. I have unclean lips. And let us see our sin and the selfishness and the sinfulness of self in 24. And then lastly, here's the last thing he sees is this. See the forgiveness from God for self. See the forgiveness. And look what he writes. In verse 6, he says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The moment Isaiah sees his sin, the moment he admits it, I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinner. Immediately, it wasn't like God was like, well, Isaiah, keep tuning up for a while, bud. Keep working it out. Nope, nope. Immediately, that angel flew with a coal. I don't know if it was literal or if it was just a picture of what God does when we confess our sin. He touched the lips of Isaiah to say, your sin is dealt with immediately. God forgives, God atones, God, this is the heart of God. And Isaiah sees it, he feels it, he gets it. I've been forgiven. But the way the forgiveness has come is through his confession. And when he confesses it, he is forgiven. See, there's two ditches that you and I can end up on in when it comes to confession and forgiveness. One ditch goes back to point number three. I'm not that bad. I mean, I, I, like I said, I'm not as bad as other people, so what do I have to be forgiven for? I actually heard an interview from um, one of our politicians um, this year that, you know, running for 2024, and the news guy was talking to them and said, talking about their Christianity, and he said, do you believe that there's anything that you need to ask God to forgive you for? He's like, no. He's like, overall, I'm a pretty good guy, and um, there's, there's nothing I need to seek anybody for forgiveness about, and I went, you're in a ditch, man, a deep ditch. But I'm telling you, a lot of people are there. I'm not that bad. What I do is not a big deal. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not, it, it, it's not that bad. So why are you so up in arms about it? Why, why is God? Because it's still sin. And when I'm in the ditch of it's not that bad, guess what I'm not doing? Confessing. And I'm not getting the forgiveness. It's, I'm still stuck in the ditch. But there's another ditch that we can end up in. Going from it's not that bad to it's too bad. There are some people that will not and cannot receive the forgiveness of God because they feel what they've done is too bad. They feel like what they've done is too sinful. They feel like, I, 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 no, God can't forgive someone like me. If you knew what I did, you, and people will be in this ditch and they won't confess their sin because they feel like God can't forgive me. Those are ditches. 
you want to be right smack in the middle of this road. And the middle of the road is, I see my sin. And God, here it is. And the heart of God is exactly what he did with Isaiah. They immediately, the moment Isaiah confessed, I am a man with unclean lips, that angel flew and touched his lips to atone for his sin. That is the very heart and nature of God. It is forgiveness. He wants us, his, his people, to just be real with our sin, confess our sin, deal with our sin, and he's willing to forgive. Listen to these psalms in Psalm 86, verse 5. It says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Notice that, who all who call upon you. You've got to call upon the Lord. You've got to confess your sin. And when you do, his steadfast love abounds, and he is forgiving and good. In Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, it says, The Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, and, great, and, and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are above all his works. That's the heartbeat of God, to be a heart, to be a God of tender mercy, to be a God of compassion, to be a God of forgiveness. And if you have sin in your life, all you got to do is say, God, here it is. Forgive me. And just like Isaiah, forgiven. Forgiven completely. And every time you and I mess up, as I said in Lamentations chapter 3 this morning, his mercies are new every day. Paul says it this way, as your sin abounds, the grace of God abounds even more. You cannot outsend the grace of God. You can't outsend his mercy. So when you mess up today, because guess what you're going to do? You're going to mess up. You're going to sin this week. You'll sin next week. The mercy of God is there for forgiveness. All you and I got to be is the one who are calling out. Father, forgive me. Amen. Let's all stand and have a closing a word of prayer.